Hello, and welcome to the ATS Rx podcast, the podcast that takes complex issues involving medication use in the ICU and breaks it down into practical and usable information for the bedside. This podcast is presented to you by the American Thoracic Society Clinical Pharmacist Working Group. The working group was established in 2019 and right now is co-chaired by Drs. Dapali Dixit and Mark Melsker. My name is Dr. Marilyn Bullock. I'm an Associate Clinical Professor of Pharmacy Practice and the Director of Strategic Operations at the Auburn University Harrison College of Pharmacy, and I will be moderating today's podcast. Our podcast is meant to discuss all things related to medication, pharmacy, and more from the pharmacist's perspective. Our podcast is for educational purposes only. Now, we're going to cover material that represents the approach, view, or opinion of our speaker that may be helpful to others, but they do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of ATS. In today's episode, we will talk about vasopressors, specifically ways to use them that the guidelines don't comment on. We are joined by a pharmacist who is widely recognized and respected for her work and research involving sepsis and vasopressors. So join me in welcoming Diana Lemieux. Diana is a senior clinical pharmacy specialist at Yale New Haven Hospital, where she previously worked in the medical intensive care unit. She is board certified in critical care pharmacotherapy and serves on the Pharmacy Research and Publication Committee for Yale. She also serves as the Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension Pharmacist Coordinator. And her current research interest lies in corticosteroids, sepsis and septic shock, and infectious disease. Diana, that sounds like so much um, on your plate. So we thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. Now, we talked earlier um, that the in this episode, we want to talk about things that the guidelines don't cover. The guidelines are brand new. They just came out in October 2021, and they're really different from the way that they have looked and felt before. They include things that have never been commented on before. And one of the things that they included in the 2021 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines was the suggestion that peripheral vasopressor administration could be used rather than delaying vasopressor use until central access is obtained. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with the 2021 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. There, There is data that delaying the initiation of vasopressors is going to be associated with increased mortality. So for example, in a 2014 study by the CATS database research group, they found that a delay of about 14 hours of vasopressor initiation after a documented hypertension event is going to be increased, associated with increased mortality. And they also found that it showed a trend towards a longer duration of vent support in the survivors. Um, so similarly, in the 2020 study, uh, they looked at time to initiation of vasopressors in the emergency department, and they saw that a vasopressor delay of greater than 20 hours was going to be an independent predictor for worsening organ failure. Now, you know, 14 hours and 20 hours, that may seem like an exorbitant amount of time to place a central line and initiate a vasopressor, but it is important to view these patients in the context of a real-world environment where you may have multiple crashing patients competing for your time. In addition to placing a central venous catheter, that may be a time-consuming process in and of itself. 
you know, traditionally central lines are placed using landmark techniques based on certain anatomic structures, the ability to palpate arteries next to the vein. But you can have issues like anatomic variations, you can have venous thrombosis, that can make it either incredibly difficult or even dangerous to place a central line. Nowadays, uh, there is data for using ultrasound probes that can help you visualize these anatomic structures. Um, they can also help you determine the patency of the vein. It can help you prevent some of the complications you see with uh, central line placement. But we do have to note that not all centers uh, may have ultrasound equipment readily available, and they may not even have uh, trained personnel to be able to administer this particular um, therapy. We also do have to talk about you know, safety. Can we do this in our patients with minimal harm? And I believe that the answer to this is yes. In uh, 2019, um, there was a meta-analysis published by Tian and colleagues, and it looked at seven studies. Now, most of the studies that were used in this meta-analysis were retrospective, but they did find one prospective observational study that assessed the safety of peripheral vasopressors. Um, they saw that there was a mean infusion duration of about 22 hours, and they found an extravasation rate of about 3.4%, which I believe this is a fairly low extravasation rate. And none of these extravasation events resulted in tissue necrosis or limbischemia, which is definitely what we're concerned about with extravasation in peripheral vasopressors. Um, and none of these events were actually managed surgically. So all of these events were able to be either managed conservatively with either ice packs or raising the limb, or you could utilize an extravasation antidote, so something like phentolamine, terbutaline, or nitroglycerin ointment. Um, so I believe that peripheral vasopressors is definitely something that we can and should do in certain situations. Yeah, you brought up an interesting point. The study you mentioned said 14 hours was sort of the time frame associated with increased mortality. Really, 14 hours sounds like a lot, but in practice, it's not, especially if they're coming to us from the outside. Um, so I, I think, it, you know, centers like where I work, where we're covering, you know, half the state, uh, th that wouldn't be hard to do. And I had this conversation with my medical residents and my medical students the other day, about the fact that we could use peripheral vasopressors now. And they brought up a really good question. They said, you know, can any vasopressor be administered peripherally? And we had to talk about it. You know, so why don't you tell us about that? You know, can we use any peripheral vasopressor? Are there certain characteristics that make one or more of the vasopressors more of an ideal option or even prevent it from being administered this way? So there are definitely items that we need to consider when we look at the peripheral administration of a vasopressor. Some of these are definitely going to be related to the actual characteristics of the drug itself, whether you're thinking of using uh, phenylephrine, epinephrine, for example. Um, but there's also a lot of like external factors that we need to consider as well. So as we just mentioned, one of the things that we are concerned about with peripheral administration is extravasation. So extravasation is going to cause very high intradermal concentrations of the drugs. And what's going to happen is you'll see alpha-adrenergic mediated vasospasm. It's going to lead to poor distal blood flow. You're, you might see a subsequent increase in hydrostatic pressure. This can cause further effusion of the vasopressor into the affected tissue. Um, this can kind of cause a bit of a vicious cycle. But as this process continues, you may potentially start to see tissue ischemia. Now, you don't always um, see this with vasopressor extravasation, but it's definitely a risk. Um, and this is a risk with any of the vasopressors that you're thinking of potentially giving peripherally. Although there is some very limited data that perhaps we may be able to use concentrated vasopressors peripherally, I believe that the best approach would actually be to limit 
the infusions to a standard or a quote-unquote dilute concentration. If these drugs do extravasate, which we have seen from the literature is a fairly low occurrence, we want to be able to limit the intradermal concentration of these drugs. Some institutions have even gone so far as to recommend maximum rates of vasopressors that could be administered peripherally. Some of the other factors that kind of play into peripheral drug administration would be the vein quality, the catheter size, and the infusion time. So ideally, we do want to select an IV catheter that is at least a 20 gauge. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines recommend a peripheral catheter that's proximal to the antecubital fossa. My assumption from reading this is that we want to avoid a peripheral IV in the antecubital fossa directly due to the potential for occlusion, you know, when the patient bends their arm. I think it's probably a good practice to avoid insertion near any joints, such as on the wrist or the hand. One time I did see a patient who had such poor peripheral access that we actually had to use, I believe, a 22 gauge in their pinky, which was impressive. Um, I did not know we could cannulate a pinky, but that would definitely not be a good line for a peripheral vasopressor. But the last consideration, and perhaps the one that is the most talked about, is time. You know, how long is it safe to give a peripheral vasopressor? And I believe the data kind of runs the gamut. You know, we have some data ranging from less than four hours to up to 72 hours. I believe most institutions that I'm familiar with actually allow for about 24 hours of peripheral vasopressors based on the results of the previously mentioned Ben analysis by Tan and colleagues. At Yale, we actually have a similar 24-hour use policy, and we do state that physicians do have the option to extend beyond that 24-hour timeline. However, if we do need to extend before, beyond that 24-hour timeline, the exception has to be documented by the provider in the medical record. You, you brought up a good point about how long can we use them, because some of our patients end up on pressors for a very long time, and I don't think that this was ever meant to be a complete substitute for central line administration. You know, is that 24 hours a hard cutoff for all of the vasopressors that you're using, or do you have certain cutoffs that you might do for the individual agents? Um, at our institution, we don't have a hard cutoff specifically um, towards the individual agent, more like a blanket statement as a whole that we prefer for it to be less than 24 hours. But there are certain situations where, you know, placement of a central line can be incredibly difficult for a patient or they may not even be stable enough for you to be able to take the time to actually place the central line. So there are certain exceptions where you would probably have to go above that 24 hour time period. Um, and at our institution, we do allow greater than 24-hour use of peripheral vasopressors, but the physician does have to document that explicitly in the medical record. Um, and there are certain things that, you know, nursing colleagues uh, do have to do. They have to check the line um, every so often to make sure that there are no signs and symptoms of extravasation for the patient. You talked earlier about the fact that not every presser is going to qualify for peripheral administration. It's just not going to work for all of them that are out there. So thinking about the ones that we do have available, you really kind of throws a wrench into things when we think about, you know, starting pressers, escalating pressers, because I think most of us in our head already have sort of a default algorithm of what we're going to do for you know, we'll start with norepinephrine, then we'll probably go to vasopressin and so forth. You know, some, you know, changes depending on the patient. How do the concept of post-dose pressors fit into your algorithm 
for vasopressor initiation and escalation? So I think push dose pressures are a great tool to have in your back pocket, but they should be used just judiciously as they're not without risk. So since we're talking about vasopressor initiation, I did want to take a quick detour to talk about the pharmacology. So selecting the correct drug for the correct patient is going to be key before we talk about how we get that drug. So when we look at push dose pressors, the most commonly studied and utilized uh, push dose pressors are going to be ephedrine, which is an oldie but a goodie, phenylephrine, and epinephrine. Ephedrine, I think, is a really interesting drug. Um, I just want to take a minute to talk about its pharmacology a little bit more in depth. So it has both a direct and indirect sympathomimetic activity. So it's going to bind to both your alpha and beta receptors. However, its effects are actually caused indirectly by inhibiting the neuronal norepinephrine reuptake and displacing more norepi from storage vesicles, which is going to allow for it to be present longer in the synapse. So if you look at that mechanism of action, this is not a drug that would be ideal to give in a patient who is catecholamine deficient, which for patients who are in sepsis and septic shock, that's a population where ephedrine may not necessarily be ideal. It also has a fairly long half-life, about 60 minutes for IV. So this is a drug that is not typically used outside of the peri-op setting. Outside of the OR, you'll typically see epinephrine and phenylephrine as your workhorses. The phenylephrine is going to be your pure alpha agonism. It's going to provide great arterial vasoconstriction. It's going to increase your systemic vascular resistance. Great for patients who are tachycardic and you want to leave their heart alone. Not great, however, for patients um, in states of shock where you do want that inotropy and the pure alpha agonism may potentially be detrimental because it's going to increase their afterload and make their heart work that much harder. So epinephrine has effects on not just the alpha receptor, but it also has the beta-1 and the beta-2 receptor agonism. So because of its beta-1 effects, you're going to see increased ionotropy. The beta-2 stimulation in the cardiac and vascular smooth muscles is going to cause vasodilation, which is going to improve your coronary blood flow. And the alpha effects similar to phenylephrine is going to increase your SVR. So both drugs have an offset of of action of about one minute and relatively similar durations of action. You'll see about five to 10 minutes for epinephrine and maybe 10 to 20 minutes for phenylephrine. So the choice of drugs should really rely on what your patient looks like what and what type of shock they're in. So once you've figured out what type of vasopressor you want to use for your patient, we have to think about you know, how we are going to give it. Are we going to do push doses or continuous infusion? And my criteria for push dose pressors is the following. So probably the most common reason that I'll reach for a push dose presser is in a setting of transient hypertension from a procedure such as RSI. We do love to use propofol as an induction agent, for example, and propofol can be known to cause hypertension. Um, it's very, fairly short-lived, about like five to 10 minutes of hypertension with propofol, but in these particular cases, phenylephrine is probably going to be my go-to agent. These patients don't need the inotropic because they're hypertensive due to the induction agents causing the systemic phase of dilation. The next criteria for when I would reach for push dose pressure would be if my patient is pericode. And usually in this situation, the medical teams will ask for push doses of epinephrine. So usually in this situation, we're not going to pu push like a full milligram. We'll maybe do smaller doses of one to two mLs of the, the burst of jet that is available in the code cards. And the third and probably my least favorite reason for reaching for a push dose presser is sometimes we may have a lack of pumps. I know in a previous institution where I worked, the previous pumps that we had utilized um, were constantly breaking down. So the institution was moving to switch to a different pumps, but in the interim, 
we have to contend with the fact that we didn't have enough pumps to sustain um, uh, vasopressors for these patients, and we usually have to run to other floors to hunt them down. So in that situation, while we're hunting down these pumps, we did have to utilize push-dose pressors to try to temporize the patient until the pumps did become available. I also think it's, it's important to mention that for institutions that it's necessary to formally discuss push-dose pressures and you know, set up criteria for when they could potentially be considered. I know that there are a lot of institutions that may not formally support their use, or they may even try to dissuade staff from using push-dose pressors, but at the end of the day, I think we do need to be pragmatic. As we mentioned before, I do believe that there are legitimate cases where the use of push-dose pressors is appropriate, and these are cases where the adrenaline and the stress is high for the medical team because of the acuity of the situation. You know, in those instances, you want your team to be trained on how to mix these vasopressors. I think most of our education on push-dose vasopressors, um, at least in the past, kind of came from social media infographics or free open access medical education. I think perhaps the last thing that anyone wants to see in an urgent situation is a poor resident typing push-dose pressors into Google or opening up their Twitter and scrolling for the right post in order to be able to look at how to potentially mix these push-dose pressors at bedside. You know, you brought up a really good point earlier about running out of pumps. I think we've all seen in the past few years where that, that could be a very quick reality depending on, you know, what kind of event we're going through. Uh, one of the things that has come into consideration recently has been the thought that maybe we should start sepsis management in pre-hospital care and get the ball rolling sooner. Hopefully that might improve outcomes. Is push-dose pressors a viable option to start even before arriving to the emergency room? I definitely think it's a valuable option, but one where I would caution establishing very strict criteria on when their use in pre-hospital care would be appropriate and also what kind of push-dose pressors should be utilized. We mentioned before that push-dose pressors are not without risk, but didn't go into what that risk is, and I kind of like to take a minute to go into that now. So it's only in the past couple of years that we started seeing formal studies about push-dose pressors. Some of the first studies were in the inpatient setting. So in 2019, we did have two studies that came out. Uh, the first was by Rotondo and colleagues. So in this particular study, they looked at critically ill patients. Most of their patients were either NICU patients or SICU patients, and they used either phenylephrine or ephedrine push-dose pressors. And when you look at why they use push-dose pressors, about 95% of the use cases were due to transient hypertension from either RSI, or sometimes procedures such as bronchoscopy where you can have that hemodynamic instability, but it typically resolves after the completion of the procedure, so very transient hypertension. They found that about 11.6% of their patients have adverse events such as you know, excessive increases in the blood pressure or the heart rate, um, only one case of dysrhythmia that they found. But what was concerning to me was seeing that about 11% of their patients actually received a dose-related medication error. And then the next study that came out, um, this one was in also in 2019 by Cole and colleagues, they looked at phenylephrine and epinephrine use in the emergency department. They found that a um, significant amount of their patients actually had adverse hemodynamic effects. You see about 27% 20 of the time with phenylephrine, about 50% of the time with epinephrine. What was interesting is that they found that more hemodynamic effects occurred when you found a bedside dilution uh, being made versus when it perhaps came commercially available, like in a phenylephrine stick, for example. 
And I also believe that they found almost 20% of the pushnotes presser administrations were associated with a human error, which was usually improper documentation of the dose. But they did find that about 3% of those patients had actually gotten a 10 to 100-fold overdose of the intended medication. And you know, that's a medication, that's a medication mistake that can be incredibly easy to make when you're not familiar with this method of administration. Um, I did want to take a quick second to throw in a shameless plug that in this study, only one dosing error had occurred when a pharmacist was present. So kind of highlighting how biopharmacists are towards increasing patient safety. I feel that every provider should have a trusty pharmacist by their side. So we're not only here to protect our patients, but also our nurses and providers as well. But, you know, these are risks that we have to worry about mitigating in the pre-hospital setting. What's interesting is shortly after these inpatient studies came out, we did also see studies evaluating push-dose pressors in critical care transport settings. The interesting part is that these pre-hospital care studies actually had a lower incidence of adverse hemodynamic events and dosing errors. And I think that's partially due to how protocolized the administration of push-dose pressors were in those studies. And this is kind of going back to my earlier point that I think institutions should create protocols or guidelines delineating when and how to use these medications. At the end of the day, would I always prefer the use of continuous infusions over push-dose pressors? Yes, absolutely. But, you know, that is not as always, that's not always possible or even necessary if the hypertension is going to be short-lived for the patient. Diana, as we wrap up, I know we've talked about a lot today. We've gotten a lot of good information. What's one last pearl, very practical advice you would give everybody regarding the use of these push dose pressures? They had to remember one thing. What would you want it to be? I think one thing that I would like people to take away is that, you know, push dose pressures are a great tool to have in your pocket. Um, push dose pressures are essentially also, you know, peripheral vasopressors. Um, in most cases, looking at micrograms per mil, push dose pressors are actually less concentrated than the standard concentrations of peripheral vasopressors that you might have. So theoretically, you can push push those pressors as long as you're able to give peripheral vasopressors. So most institutions, it's about, you know, 24 hours. But I think with each administration of push dose pressors, with each compounding of the dose, you are opening up the patient to additional risk, which could be easily mitigated by starting an infusion. Um, so from my experience, I found that one of the biggest risks is proper compounding and labeling of the medication. So I generally try to make sure a proper infusion is started before we need to compound, you know, another syringe. So although it's a great tool to have in your pocket, I think that's one that we definitely need to have very judicious use and should kind of always opt to try to transition the patient to a continuous infusion as, as fast as we can. Diana, thank you so much for joining us today in this episode of ATS Rx podcast. We really appreciate you giving us the information that you provided. Hopefully that'll enable a lot of people to go back to their institutions and have a, another little thing in their pocket that they can use for their patients and improve safety. And to the listener, thank you for joining us to this episode of ATS Rx podcast. We hope you'll join us again as we discuss other issues important to pharmacy, um, particularly involving critical care, but all areas of medicine. Have a great day.